for 12 years in a row. Ranking Arizona's number one most trusted referral network, rosieonthehouse.com. And we're privileged and happy to have you. And over three decades of Rosie on the House. Nine o'clock hour. Second hour of our Saturday morning broadcast. It's the On the House Hour. We talk about something on your home, castle, or cabin. And we're talking about the water on your property, in your plumbing, in your pipes, how it gets to you, and how we're going to conserve that uh, for the growing population. I'm happy to report, based on Jim Cross, Arizona's weather reporter, uh, states that due to recent rains, that we are down from what was 84% extreme drought down to 52%. Now, 52% drought isn't good, but that's better than 84%. So always happy for the rain we get. SRP reported last week that uh, they are still in good good position between the Salt and the Verde River watershed, about 104,000 acre feet. Now, you're going to hear acre feet a lot, and we'll describe exactly what that is. Uh, Puts the 21 runoff second driest in 109 years since SRP has kept record, but... The reservoirs are still at 1.3 million acre feet, which is two times more than their annual water delivery and more than CAP delivers in a year. So we've got a great reservoir uh, there. And the Arizona Water Bank Authority has stored over 3 million acre feet of Colorado River water. So we've got huge reservoirs in the state. And it's a statistic you hear from us often, but I wanted to back that up with a statistic. Statistic reported by Smithsonian Institute that America as a whole is using less water than we did in 1970. And the statistic you hear in Arizona often is today we're using the same amount of water as we did 64 years ago in 1957. Right. Pretty impressive, especially when you consider our population then was about a million and now we're about 7 million. So with the addition of 6 million people we're still consuming annually about the same amount of water. So to a first, how are we going to go forward? I think we have to look at how we've accomplished that. And the biggest water user in the state is agriculture. So we asked Julie Murphy from the Arizona Farm Bureau. You were in, you're always in the first Saturday of the month in our 8 o'clock hour. Since August was water month, we thought, well, let's just hold you over and join us in this hour to talk about how We've done that, uh, right. being the biggest water consumer. At one point, agriculture was 90% of our annual use, and right now it's uh, like 77%. Mm-hmm. So not only are you the biggest water users, but in regards, you're the biggest water conservationists, right. being able to maintain the same water use. Yeah, I'm, I really appreciate, Romy, that you didn't let me flee the studio because water is one of my favorite topics for us, and Arizona Farm Bureau is uh, addressing it on a constant basis. And so that's why I, uh, I'm joined today with Arizona Farm Bureau's Government Relations Director, Chelsea McGuire. And she and I are partnered at the Farm Bureau in advancing the cause of this critically important industry, which is agriculture. But I... Before I let her talk, I want to emphasize Chelsea's farm background even more. So her and I were not in farming, but she comes, like myself, from a generational farm family in the same county, Pinal County. And there the family grew cotton, wheat, and melons. And during her high school years, she managed production. I mean, she did more than I did. I drove the tractor. I 
burned weeds. Yes, I trimmed trees in our pistachio orchard. But here's what she did. She managed production on a few of her own acres. She has boots on the ground experience with managing and applying targeted water on crops. And I mentioned that we're both from Pinal County. This county is known as an innovator in water technology and conservation. 90-plus percent of the farming, farming acres in Pinal County have some sort of irrigation efficiency infrastructure on them, whether that's laser leveling for flood irrigation, drip systems, pivot sprinklers, and more. My own farmer dad was leveling his field in the ni- fields in the 1980s and completed 100% of the process within a decade. So all his water application on his crops... We're saving water. And that's typically, that's what the Schlittenhart family, that's her maiden name, uh, did with her grandpa can tell you stories that go back decades. Pinal County is also host to the Wirtz family. I want to give the Wirtz family in Pinal County some props here. They're a generational farm family that for several decades has now pioneered drip technology to the point that some of their patented technology and drip is known and used worldwide. So, um, you know, and it doesn't end there. With It doesn't end with Pinal County. Farmers across our state are working every day to be as efficient as possible when it comes to our most precious resource, which obviously is water. Uh, if we don't have water, we can't farm. We're excited to spend some time talking with you today about why farms are water-wise. And if there's anybody that knows, it's Chelsea, because every water meeting that we have in the state. So Chelsea, Give us the overview. What's going down with water in Arizona and all these meetings that you have to attend? Yeah, it's it's constant, right? And I think that is because it's such an important resource and it's such a scarce resource here in Arizona. And so, you know, some of the stats that we mentioned earlier on in this segment about how much water that Arizona agriculture uses, I think it's really important to put that into context. Uh, we are definitely the biggest water user in the state, but it's also... I think the best return for water that we have in our state. So I kind of look at it as like a monthly budget, right? My mortgage is the biggest thing I have in my monthly budget, but that doesn't mean that that's where I should look necessarily to decrease what I'm spending per month because it's the most important thing I spend every month as well. It's what gives us that shelter. It's what gives us that basic need. So when we're talking about Arizona's water use and agriculture's water use especially – It's great to know that what our farmers and ranchers are doing every single day is everything they can to conserve that water. Use every drop to the best of their ability so that it's producing as much as possible to put food on the plates of you and me. And so it's it's fun to be here to talk about it. I do spend a whole lot of time, you know, as government relations director, I get to serve as sort of the conduit between our Farm Bureau members and their elected officials. And so when they need to talk to government agencies or talk about issues that are facing them, I get to be sort of that connector between them and the right person to talk to. And a lot of times what that means is that I'm learning a lot about what's happening out at the government and making sure that our voices of farmers and ranchers are heard. And so uh, happy to talk today about how we've been able to decrease agricultural water withdrawals by 35% in Arizona and yet still have a $23.3 billion industry that puts food on my plate, your plate, and the plates of everybody in the state. And so some of these specific water technologies that the Romy family, Romero family is giving us the privilege to share, it's the irrigation technology, it's the seed technology, flood irrigation, low and no-till and crop rotation, and soil technology. So let's launch into some of these. Um, yeah. What about the irrigation technology? So I think this is the, the best one and the most visible one to talk about. When we're talking about how do we produce food with water – 
and we look out and we see, okay, there's all these things on farms and some of them are flooding and some of them are doing this. Kind of the conversation always goes to, well, let's talk about drip irrigation. And there's a really good reason for that. And it's because drip irrigation allows a farmer to be extremely precise in their water application. What it means is that there's a line going across the field. So that line can either be on top of the soil, it can be below the soil, and it's got low pressure, literal drips of water coming out of that line in areas across the field. And so that applies water only as much as the farmer wants to apply and only where the farmer wants to apply it. And so that means that that water is going directly to the plant's root system. The plant can use that as effectively as possible, uses all of that. You're losing less to evaporation. You're losing less to runoff. And so drip has really been heralded as sort of the best way to improve water conservation and the best way to get the most out of that drop. So every listener is going to ask, well, then why isn't every farmer converting to drip, Chelsea? Yeah. And that's a question I hear all the time. You know, if it's so great, why why don't we just mandate that that's what everybody has to do? And it is great, but it's also limited in how great it is. Uh, the first limitation on drip is really the cost. You're looking at anywhere between $500 and $1,200 an acre to install a drip system. And you are going to save some money. It is going to increase that efficiency and it is going to give you some better margins, but that's a lot to pay for. And when yeah. we have farmers who have razor thin margins all the time anyway, it's really difficult for them to be able to make that capital investment. And when you're talking capital investment, I'm just going to use our farmer that was in last hour, John Bolt's Desert mm-hmm. Premium Farms out of Yuma. 2,000 acres that they farm, if they were on the higher end of that 1,200 per acre to convert times 2,000, that's $2.4 million to convert. That's right. And imagine if he just leases. He doesn't own the, the land. So he's at risk of a huge investment. And a lot of our farmers out here are leasing land. Yeah. And it's very difficult sometimes, too, to see that planning horizon when you're talking about farming because you don't know what the market's going to be two years from now, three years from now versus what it is today. So that's one of the biggest challenges to having that at least drip irrigation technology on every acre that we're growing food. The other is that drip doesn't always work well depending on what your soil type is like. So I actually leaned very heavily on my personal expert in drip irrigation and irrigation technology, uh, Joel John. He's actually a state representative from District 4, but his family also owns an irrigation technology company. And I said, okay, if you were to say, what's the best soil type to put drip irrigation on, what would your answer be? And he said, well, it really works best on heavier soils with a little bit more of a clay content. Those aren't all that frequent here in Arizona. We've got pretty sandy soils most of the time. But he said that the reason for that is that water moves laterally a lot better through that heavier soil. And so that's what you're talking about, getting it all the way down to that root system, all the way across that field. Now, Arizona's sandy loam soils do still work pretty well for drip. And he said that, you know, most of our soils are going to work, but there are some soils where it doesn't make sense. So you're going to make that investment and actually not get the efficiency that you want to get out of it. And so that's another calculation our farmers are making on a day-to-day basis when it comes to that. And so, I'm going to just, we've got one minute here to the break, and I want to make one more point from uh, John earlier. Uh, they're saying... You, depending on uh, the quality, 10 to 20% of their watering is to leach out minerals. So the water quality and the water source that they're coming from can also be a determining factor in that because you might, you know, something that's more, has more minerals and more salts in it. If you're just doing a slow drip application, Mm -hmm. you can have a lot more salt mineral buildup there and it might not be the the best match for that. Yeah. 
you're going to get that and you don't have the pressure to leach those salts down into the soil so they're not you know near the plant but you're also going to have issues with salt or sand in your pumps for your drip system and that's going to cause some pretty big maintenance headaches as well the things that you're consuming every day start with valuable resources in terms of food, you know, food waste, you're wasting water. It's the consumer, the person out in Phoenix right now driving their car or whatever, whatever they've eaten today, you know, that water has, has basically been used twice. Water for food production and water for drinking are not mutually exclusive. That's a great point from Stephanie Smallhouse that was made on this broadcast back in 2018. She's the current president of the Arizona Farm Bureau. I love that. Water for food and water for drinking aren't mutually exclusive. And I want to address one statement you had said, Chelsea, is uh, lost water. And I try and not use lost water because you really don't lose water. You change its form. You don't ever lose water. You may mismanage it. You may not utilize it for what its intended purpose was, but evaporated water it's not in its collection form it's in its gas form well it's going to come back right it's going to condense in the clouds it's going to rain snow fall on the mountaintop weather cycle and come back down water is a closed loop cycle the same amount of water is here all the time it's just in different forms yeah that's right and i think what our farmers would tell you too is that when they talk about water waste, their fear is taking water that they have, the scarce water they have available to grow food, and not actually putting it toward that purpose, right? So when they look at water evaporation, they're saying, yeah, it's going to come back to me eventually. What I want, though, is for that water to go directly to the crop that I'm growing today. And so that's why this irrigation technology has come into play so heavily, because that's really going to decrease that water that's not going precisely where they want it to go and doing exactly what they want it to do. So there is some other water technologies. We kind of drilled down, uh, pun intended, on drip. But what about sprinklers? What about some of the other technologies, even siphon tube irrigation has had improvements over the years. Yeah, so I'll drill down a little on sprinklers, to use your terminology, Julie. And Um, does that include pivots? Exactly, yeah. So when we talk about sprinklers, I'm talking about center pivots that you might see to create those nice circular fields, right, that we see from our airplanes, that kind of thing. But it can also be what they call a solid set sprinkler. And so that's something that's going to move on a parallel track through that field and to kind of move back and forth. And you want to see that, just drive on the 303 on the west side. There's a lot more warehouses there than there was mm-hmm. uh, yesterday and <laughs> two years ago and <laughs> yep. five years ago. But you still, that's primarily, uh, and, and I feel for those guys. I mean, those look like heavy galvanized pipes and they're picking them up and putting them down two, three times a year. That's like, right. And I wouldn't want to arm wrestle them. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. And the reason you see so many of those around the 303 is because there's a significant amount of vegetable and produce production there. Melons, leafy greens, that kind of thing. And sprinklers work really well for those crops. One, because those crops take a lot of water to germinate from the outset. So when you have maybe drip installed, that water is going kind of below the seed, and that's not exactly where you want it to go. A sprinkler is going to put it right on top of the seed and allow that seed to germinate. And so that sprinkler allows you to put a lot of water at that point, get that seed germinated. And then the same thing is drip. You're controlling that from a pump system. And so throughout the growing cycle, you're only putting as much water on that crop as you want to put on it when you want to put on it. Now, you said you had some stats on the sprinkler heads. 
did you did you gather any of those? Did a Joel John help us put that together? Or? <laughs> so one of the things I'm tempted to do but really don't want to do is say something like, you know, sprinklers are X percent more efficient than flood or drip is X percent more efficient than flood. And a lot of the reason I don't want to do that is because of all the other variables that you have to play into that to make sure that, you know, you're not using the drip inefficiently when flood would be the better option or sprinkler would be the better option. Based on the region, the soil type, uh, what you are growing, all of those things have to be factored in. I'm telling you, these farmers have to be engineers. That's exactly right. Um, But what we can say is the actual technology itself and ways to make it the most efficient. And so one of the issues you do run into sprinklers with is evaporation because you're creating a much smaller water particle. It's going to evaporate a lot more quickly. And so what our farmers have done is find ways to get that water particle closer to the plant. And so especially like on a center pivot, when the actual sprinkler head is hanging down from the pivot, getting it as close to the ground as possible, and then also making it as low pressure as possible is going to prevent that evaporation. It's going to get the water where it's supposed to go and make that technology even more efficient. And then I assume they adjust that as the plant grows. Exactly. So interesting. So another one of the technologies, and Chelsea, you and I both can speak to this, is seed technology. Yeah. And this began decades ago. Um, I want to say that it really, truly began in the Norman Borlaug era when he literally went to Mexico, was down there for years, and helped that country develop a wheat that was more drought resistant. Well, if you develop a seed, and it was all done in a very traditional way, Mm -hmm. your typical crossbreeding of the best of the best. school biology, Punnett Square type stuff. Exactly. And the fact of the matter is if I can produce a seed that takes less water, I'm using less water. So seed technology in our irrigation, our water management has been some of the most revolutionary. And all the way to, and a little bit more controversial, the biotech seed. And that is what, you know, the community at large might better understand is GMOs. So Talk a little bit more about the biotech seed, the regulate regulatory yeah. environment, and so that, and all of that done so that you and I are more safe. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I'm glad you brought up the Norman Borlaug area or era before that because I really do like to talk about bio- biotechnology as just speeding up that process. So when Norman Borlaug saw that you know this wheat's growing a lot shorter, which means you're not putting as much energy into the stock that you don't use, so that's the seed I'm going to breed. What our biotech engineers do now is they see that and they use it to uh, to say, okay, we're going to isolate that gene and then put it in something else. And that process is extremely rigid, extremely regulated, and extremely safe. And one of the ways that we have been able to sustain the same water use here in Arizona over the last 64 years, talking water conservation over the last 64, 150 years, and how we're going to extend it into the future. We've been talking as if we're about to have a big water crisis, and we're not. We plan water in Arizona on a very long timeline. There has been a lot of long-term planning and preparation for drought, preparation for shortage. Most cities have diverse water portfolios, and so they, they have made plans to stay resilient in that. What do you think is the largest irrigated crop in the U.S.? People. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> the answer is lawns. We grow a lot of grass. Water flows toward money, uh, doesn't it? A really great website called ArizonaWaterFacts.com. Our state, compared with the mid-50s, we went from 
a million people to 7 million people. Our economy has grown 20 times what it was in the mid-50s, and yet we're using slightly less water than we were then. That was Sarah Porter. Again, I guess that was all uh, audio that came from this program. Uh, She was actually on with Stephanie Smallhouse, who was the intro you heard coming into the second segment. And when you talk about water crisis, just, you know, be thankful you're not Cape Town, South South Africa, where water is being rationed to 13 gallons per day per person. Imagine that, 13 gallons. They say the average person in the U.S. uses 82 gallons. So just imagine you're... your water use being a quarter of what you're allowed. And Arizona is not the only place that has uh, has water. You know, the article here from the Wall Street Journal talking about uh, the Florida-Georgia conflict that's battling out over there. And just be thankful you're in Arizona because our water laws and our water history, you know, is so in-depth where over in Florida, Georgia, they never thought it would be a problem. So there's arguments there about who can pump where and underground what and what water belongs to Georgia and Florida. And uh, it's, it's leaving farmers like this guy in a very uh, dry, a very Arizona-looking uh, pivot field where he used to have his peanuts. And 40 million people, this article came from uh, KTAR, about a $5 billion agricultural industry, those numbers don't quite add up when uh, we're talking about everything we, we cover here at Rosie on the House. So our big picture that we want to give you is, yes, we're in a drought, but it's not necessarily uh, – we're, we're not at a doomsday scenario. And what we've been able to accomplish has been very impressive over the past. And where we can go in the future is, is even more exciting. The Alfalfa Project. Julie, have you f- heard of it? I really haven't. I'm- so I've been following this for about four years. And it goes to Chelsea. When you hear the numbers, you're like, why doesn't everybody jump to this? Well, your infrastructure cost is significant. But instead of like some of uh, former Arizona governors running around saying we need to pay people not to farm. And if we could cut back 10% of our farming, that'll solve all of our water needs. Well, Okay, are you going to stop eating 10% of what you're currently eating? No. (laughs) You just can't do that. So now your food costs are going up because it's importing from somewhere else. Why not look to technology? Enter the alfalfa project. This doesn't have a direct effect on Arizona yet because this is actually in the San Joaquin Valley. So it is above where water is drawn out of Colorado River for California. They actually have two places they pump out, and so does Arizona. We don't have just the CAP. But the alfalfa project is a way of converting alfalfa, irrigated farms, to sub-drip irrigation. So we're not just talking surface drip. This is sub-drip irrigation. And if they're able to accomplish... On a large scale, what they've been able to do on 2,000 acres, which is cut the water consumption from 5 acre feet of water per ton of alfalfa to 2.4 acre feet of water per ton of alfalfa, they will save a project on, okay, so their goal is to convert 235,000 acres of alfalfa to this system. And if they're able to do that, that's going to save almost 100 million acre-feet of water annually. So now that you say that, yes, and most of that I think is taking place in the Harquahela Valley, and I I just never called it the alfalfa project. A lot of those alfalfa fields already are being done by 
surface drip irrigation. So if yeah. just in the San Joaquin Valley, 230,000 acres there, they're able to save so a million acres. So that's in California. Feet. Yeah. Okay. Imagine what that can do not only in Harquahela yeah. and in Yuma yeah. and in Arizona, but a lot of the water out of the Colorado River is going out of is going into the Imperial Valley of California mm-hmm. to grow alfalfa. So if we can do a million acre feet up there, just imagine what we can do right. down here with probably we probably have more uh, acres might- than two hundred thirty thousand between Arizona and California growing alfalfa off of Colorado River water that we can convert to that. So instead of yeah. paying to not farm, why don't we look at technology, technology, which is what we've been talking about, and th- there is up in uh, more northern northeastern Arizona, some of that stuff is already or conversions are already taking place. But one of the other technologies that I really wanted uh, Chelsea to address was the flood irrigation because of my dad's own example of laser leveling. And then once all his fields were laser laser leveled, I like to say tabletop smoothness with a slight slant. One of my farmers said, I don't know if this is that smooth, but it's very smooth. And that technology then allows them to do the basin irrigation. But why, you know, when you hear flood irrigation, Chelsea, everybody thinks... And is it, it is huge volumes of water, but why is this so important? And, and one more point on the alfalfa before we yeah. jump to that. Yeah. Is, so why alfalfa? What's the significance of yeah. alfalfa? I'm glad you asked that question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Because I think that and flood irrigation, I hear a lot of the same narrative all the time. Why in the world are we growing alfalfa in the desert? Why in the world are we just pouring a bunch of water on a field and letting it sit there? What? How does this make any sense? And that all plays together, actually. So let's look at Pinal County for an example. We're being a little biased toward that county yes, right now, but that's okay. Um Pinal County is about a $2.3 billion agricultural industry in that county. And the multiplier effects of that are significant because a lot of them deal with food processing. There's quite a bit of food processing Mm -hmm. in that county, and a lot of it's dairy processing. The reason that's possible is because there are quite a few dairy farms, a lot of volume of milk in Pinal County that's close to that processing. Makes it efficient. It makes it effective that you're not shipping that raw product super far distances. You're saving on fuel, all that stuff. Now, to have that milk supply close, it makes sense to have the feed supply for that milk close. And a lot of that feed supply is through alfalfa. And so when you're a consumer and you go into the grocery store and you know that that milk in front of you, whether it's a store brand or a name brand, probably 85% of the time came from Arizona cows and was actually in that cow about 72 hours before you're picking it up off the shelf, that's only possible because we have this intertwined infrastructure of the feed source is close to the cow, the cow is close to the processing, the processing is close to the store. And those cows are eating Arizona locally grown alfalfa. That's right. Right. So that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is that alfalfa grows extremely well here. When we can say we get eight, nine, ten cuttings of alfalfa, which means we can harvest that Mm -hmm. field, eight, nine, ten times in a season. When I'm going to talk to my friends in other Western states and even in the Midwest, they're happy if they get three, if they get four. So that means that for every drop of water we're using, we're getting exponentially more product for that drop of water. And so that efficiency is really key and isn't possible in states or places that don't have the climate that Arizona has. So why is the flood irrigation, though, so important then with all of this? And one more thing that 
I, and I, I want to get. To, I know you want to get there. One more. I point really do. We're missing the point. <laughs> We're missing the point. One more thing. <laughs> Not just feed for dairy cattle, but it's feed for uh, a lot of your livestock. Oh, yeah. And when we, when you grew up. You know, you were taught about all the different things Indians used buffaloes for. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the bones they were making tools and, you know, the bladders they were using for canteens. And, you know, they were very... Nothing is wasted. Nothing's wasted. Well, that hasn't changed. And in no. fact, we're even more efficient with our animal byproducts than the Native Americans were. 50% of an animal is just food and uh, dairy. The other 50% goes into a lot of things. Yep, you know, that when you think about all your leather products, cosmetics, gummy bears, glues, uh, adhesives, <laughs> crayons, crayons. We, we don't waste any part of the animal. And even if it's composting it to fertilize, That's right. to grow more feed, to feed the animals, yep. it, it's a complete cycle. So you couldn't just say, well, eat less beef and, and go vegan. Well, And quit right. the alfalfa. You, you can't. Because yeah. the amount, everything in your life uh, I was looking for the actual term. There, there is a profession that will come out and educate you on every how everything you have and use is somehow tied back to an animal block. Yes. Yeah, we've been sharing those on Facebook too. That's right, and so, and even you know talking about moving towards more plant based types of diets and systems. The fertilizer for that has to come from somewhere too, right? It's yes. kind of a, I wouldn't say a closed loop, but it is definitely an integral and you can't separate one segment of agriculture from another. You really can't. So do I have permission to ask about the flood now? <laughs> Go to your laser <laughs> leveling. <laughs> Go for it, Chelsea. All right. So flood irrigation. Why do we use it? Doesn't it just waste a bunch of water because you're throwing it out on the field and then it evaporates and then it runs down the field, it runs into the street? Absolutely not. Flood irrigation, all of these technologies we've talked about, drip and sprinkler, the reason they work so well is because of the precision, right? You can get the water where you want it to go when you want it to go there. And our farmers have developed ways to make flood irrigation just as precise as those other technologies on the soils and on the topographies where it makes sense for that to happen. So Julie talked about laser leveling. That's kind of step one. You level that field to the exact slope that you need it to go to to get the water from one end of the field where your ditch is to the other end of the field where it ends. So you're using GPS to do that. You're using lasers on the back of your tractors to do that, which is a very Star Wars type of statement to make, I'm now realizing. And so you're doing that (laughs) extremely precise and exactly where you want it to go. Then in some other parts of the state, especially out in the West Valley where I live, there are these things called tailwater pump back systems. So that means when you have a field and that slope creates a a situation where the water is kind of pooling at the bottom of the field, they actually have pump back systems where they're pumping that water back to the top so that water is not being wasted. It's not running off into somewhere they don't want it to go. They're putting it back into their crop and back into their water delivery systems. So in certain instances with certain crops, you really need that high volume of water and you need it to get out quickly and so that's why we have these systems that's exactly and right nothing is wasted and the reason we can't afford to waste our water is because there's a cost involved and some of those costs are very high yeah they can either be financial costs or even human right. and ecological costs mm-hmm. too and one of those ecological costs of these technologies and we talked about it earlier is the salt issue arizona has very salty soils all you got to do is go out with a shovel in your backyard and dig about a foot down to realize that and when we don't have that volume of water that's leaching that salt down and pushing that salt down we can run into some real soil quality issues that make it impossible or unfeasible to grow plants in that area as well and 
so all of these things kind of work into that closed system too. When you're leaching that water down into the soil, those salts down into the soil, that water's going to go somewhere and that's going to replenish our aquifers. It's going back into the ground, into that closed loop. So there are a lot of good reasons to use flood and there are also a lot of good reasons not to say that it's wasteful. Um, did talk to one of our farmers out in the West Valley about that argument, right? There's evaporation, you're just letting water sit on the field. And he put it into perspective for me. He said, look, when we're at the peak of our alfalfa production, on average, our alfalfa fields will have water on them eight hours out of the month. That's how often we're irrigating. There's eight hours of water standing in that field for a month. What does your swimming pool look like? There you go. I said, oh, yeah, that, yeah. that really does put it into perspective. So when we're talking about wastefulness, I think flood irrigation gets maligned way, often, way more often than it should. We have to be careful about where the population grows, and we also have to realize the value of having agriculture here in our state, because if our state is covered with red tile roofs, there's no flexibility in the water budgets. We can't go to the farmer and say, hey, I'll pay you not to farm and and divert that water to Phoenix or Tucson. So there's a balance that needs to be achieved. One foot of elevation in Lake Mead is equal to about 100,000 acre feet of water. Everybody can do their part, that there is room in everybody's water budget, as we say, to cut back, to conserve, to be a little bit more efficient in your water use. The cost of desalinated water is twice what the cost of other surface water supplies are. So it's a big increase in the cost of water. Uh, We've had the Yuma desalination plant, which is just outside of the city of Yuma. That's a 25-year-old plant built by the Bureau of Reclamation, currently mothballed, but could be restarted and generate water. In 1980, we passed the Groundwater Management Act, and what we did is we said, you know what, we're going to save our groundwater, this non-renewable supply, for the drought periods that are sure to come in a desert. And we're going to put all the emphasis on using surface water and reclaimed water. We've got over 3 million acre feet has been stored underground in aquifers. Those were all sound bites from an interview we had here at Rosie on the House with Rita McGuire. Uh, you can find the, that entire hour at our water resource page right now, uh, our blog that you got in your weekly newsletter, uh, links to that. I'm going to say that page is only about a degrade right now because we have so much information. And instead of creating a new blog during the entire month of August, we're talking about water, we're just going to add to that. So by the end of the month, that article is going to be packed with resources, all those interviews that you've heard from different experts and It'll be the one-stop shop for water information. And you had mentioned pools as we were going to the last one. So that we're not going to have time to get into it, but that was one thing I wanted to talk about today. Is it responsible to have pools, lawns, misting systems like that in Arizona? And people high center on physical water use. They see the water getting used, so they think it's being wasted, where you know they don't think about all the other activities they did that day that took water or maybe would have wasted water. Like Stephanie's clip earlier, mm-hmm. food waste is water waste. So Specifically on pools real quick, the Association of Pool Industry says there's 612,000 pools in Arizona. The pool average is 12, uh, excuse me, 13,000 gallons. That's 7.9 billion gallons of water. What is 9 billion gallons of, I'm sorry, 8.7. So 8 billion gallons. What is 8 billion gallons? What does that equal? Uh, 24 acre feet of water. What is 24 acre feet of water? Less than 2% of what comes down the CAP canal every year. And I was trying to do the math on it earlier, and I'm even on CAP's website, and they have conflicting uh, 
information. One says they can fill an Olympic swimming pool in 23 seconds. The other one says three seconds <laughs> when they're pumping out of Mark Wilmer. So depending on which one of those numbers you could take, in less than 10 hours, CAP could fill every pool in Arizona. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, 10 hours. Wow. Right? Before you go to bed tonight, they could fill every pool. So we've got water water's in the big. state. <laughs> and to take it even on a global perspective, they say only 2% of water is fresh and only 1% of that is easily accessible. So if, if, we're, if, if 1% is the global supply and we're using billions of gallons a year in Arizona, 1% a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's 1% doesn't sound good, but we're talking about a volume number you can't even pronounce the number for. <laughs> you know how serious farmers about managing their water uh, years ago, my dad took what already existed actually worked with. Um, he got the idea from the Layton farming family in Queen Creek and developed and ended up patenting a weir that's used for measurement because farmers want to make sure that the water that was sent to them and allotted that they get what they were allotted. Yeah. And so there's mm-hmm. it's key to measure. And Chris Johnson, who has the Well Energy Testing Consultancy Company, still to this day uses the weir that Dad developed decades ago. So we're serious about our water in agriculture. We are. And one of the points I think I want to make, especially about just the water resiliency of Arizona, because we've talked about that a lot today. You know, we're not in a crisis. You don't have to worry about turning off your taps or having Cape Town type quotas today tomorrow. That really comes on the backs of agriculture. And we alluded to it in that clip that opened this segment in that farming allows us to have that flexibility. And so a lot of the pain that is felt when we are in these drought shortage situations is felt by our farmers. And that's part of the reason that they have invested so much of their money, so much of their resources into these water-saving technologies and methodologies is because they know they are the margin for water use in Arizona. And so when you as a person in a residential area know that you can be safe and secure in your water supply, um, thank a farmer. It's a farmer. And be thankful you're not in Dubai. They only get four (laughs) inches of rainfall. It has to import 80% of its food. Can you imagine if we, what our cost of food would be if we were importing 80%? And the it's, instability of supply and, oh. yeah. And you well, see how extravagant Dubai looks? And it's they're beautiful. doing a new form of cloud seeding. They're using drones with lasers to shock molecules out of the air. This sounds like something Dr. Evil invented, but it's serious. This is out of uh, Forbes magazine. It's a gentleman by the name of Cohen, Ariel Cohen, who is a weather reporter for the Middle East and uh, Europe. We'll have the link on our water page. Dubai, using laser drones to shock rainwater out of the sky. I don't see us having to go to that extreme anytime soon in Arizona. But I think we'd try it. (laughs) We would try it. Thank you, Romy. 